0: Welcome to the Border Collie Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Martina, obsessed like you about Border Collies and dog training. Follow me to know more about this amazing breed and to learn from many inspiring dog professionals on how to make your training journey a success. Hello Bora Collie Geeks and welcome to a new episode. Today's guest is Laura Ward. And Laura and I met online um, on um, the Facebook group of APDT members when I asked if anyone wanted to um, come and be interviewed on the podcast. And she said, I'm a clinical animal behaviorist and I own a border collie. And I said, yes, (laughs) I need to have you on the podcast. So so Laura is a clinical animal behaviorist and specializes in dog aggression. Um, She has worked as a registered veterinary nurse as well. Uh, previous to becoming a behaviorist. Um, She's a strong believer in up-to-date theoretical knowledge, and she has completed um, accredited qualification in behavior and training, including advanced diploma in canine behavior management, um, a BSc in applied animal behavior, achieved uh, certificated um, clinical behaviorist status. Um, So what she'll talk about what a clinical animal behaviourist is, but um, so the qualification is only awarded to people by the Association of the Study of Animal Behaviour, the ASAB, who have proved their ability to be professional, effective, humane, and considerate to both animal and owner, whilst taking a tailored and measured approach to each individual case. Taking a more clinical approach to behavior changes means that Laura looks at all factors that could influence behavior, considering health, diet, learning experiences, neurochemistry, and biology of stress responses. Um, she has a lot of other um, accreditation, and part she's part of also um, a list of organizations. Um, So she's part of the Certified Clinical Animal Behaviorist. She's a full member of the APDT, like me. Um, She's um, an Animal Behaviour and Training Council Accredited Practitioner. She's a full member and vice chair for the Canine Training and Behaviour Society, a full member for the Association of Pet Behaviour Counselors, and also a Cent UK instructor and judge. So, um, yeah, she's got a lot of knowledge. And she's going to teach you a lot on this episode. I'm, I'm, you know, I I teach part of these things, but I think the way she explains them and the way she, you know, the way she has with words is going to be really, really helpful for all of you to understand the difference between fear and anxiety, because that's what I asked her to come and talk about. Because I think that is misunderstood sometimes. Um, you know what is fear what is anxiety so I really wanted an episode specifically on this I hope you enjoy it hello Laura and welcome to the podcast hello thank you for inviting me you're very welcome, and um, thank you for for coming. Because yes, I you know when you when you um, reach out and say you know if you want a clinical behaviorist in your podcast, I was like yes, yes, please. Um, I need one. Yes, um, I I had a friend, a behaviorist already having a chat with me at the beginning of you know one of the first podcasts. But yes, I think definitely. Um, I'm a dog trainer. I always say I'm a dog trainer, so I do rely on clinical behaviorists to help me. With the difficult cases and you know, so it's it's a you know, we are not the same thing and it's important that people know, you know, from a professional point of view. So sure. we're not the same thing and there is there is there is a place for you helping me and me helping you, but we can talk about that later. It's not yeah. about yeah, it's not about So welcome and can you introduce mm-hmm. you to uh, my listeners so we can first get to know you a bit more and then we can talk about, you know, you know, the 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 very important
1: topic today that is going to be about anxiety and fear sure so um my name is laura ward um just to give you a little bit of my background i was a veterinary nurse for 10 years um and then towards the end of my veterinary nurse career i did a degree in animal behavior sort of while still working as a veterinary nurse um so i i have a, a honors degree in applied animal behavior um I then set up my own business started dog training running classes socialization walks um and taking on behavior cases and I over the years then built up enough experience to then do my clinical animal behavior assessment with the ASAB um so I am a CCAB which is certified clinical animal behaviorist um and I'm registered with the ABTC, which is a really good register for many practitioner organisations, um, sort of like an umbrella organisation for, for many different practitioner organisations to um, showcase what, what kind of behaviour are out there for anybody needing help. Um, so I have been running my business, which is Minds Alike Animal Behaviour for nine years now. Um, and i see a very very busy caseload of behavior cases and of course it's all exploded even more since lockdown um so there's yeah. there's um there's just so much need for for behaviorists um i'm also involved with progression of the industry um we're really hoping that the industry is going to become a regulated industry um so i'm involved with the canine behavior and training society i'm the vice chair um, and we are working on helping to assess new trainers and new behaviorists um, and getting them onto the abtc register Mm -hmm. under our organization which is a practitioner organization um so I'm quite heavily involved in assessments and um and helping the industry move forward with that, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, it's really important as well because as mm. we had a quick chat before we started recording, you know, there's so much out there that so much, so many, so many people that just start as a trainer and they have no clue what they're doing and they create so many disasters. Yeah. That, you know, I just had a phone call before you of um, a breed that I don't work with normally, another breed, but again. A dog that reacts and he's got a prong collar on and <laughs> it's like oh no why yeah. and you know you have to always fight against these things and so it's good you know we I think he needs regulating it does
1: yeah, yeah it does and we were just mentioning as well about you know when people watch dog training on tv sometimes it sets them up with unrealistic expectations because those programs are so heavily edited yeah. um and it doesn't always reflect actually what needs to happen and also um um, it it doesn't have time to really go into the depth that we would go into um which would be to be considering you know breed age diet medical history but most importantly the emotions of the animals which is what we're talking about today
0: yeah definitely and actually before we dive into that can you just tell a bit our listeners what is the actual difference between a clinical animal behaviorist um someone that just comes out of you know a a a degree and a dog trainer like me so what is the difference so people are looking for the differences and who to reach out to sure so
1: um there are varying roles within the the behavior and training industry um so Essentially, I, I won't go too much into the, specifically the ABTC roles because not everybody is involved with that organisation. But um, in my mind, the difference between a trainer and a behaviourist is a trainer will approach a problem in mind of, well, we need to change this behaviour by changing the pattern of the behaviour. And we often will do that by changing, uh, training a different behaviour. And then we can replace that different, more appropriate behaviour with um, the the inappropriate behavior, which the dog was maybe performing before. So it's more about changing behavior through training new responses. And definitely that's part of behavior work as well. Um, So, and then of course you've also, you're you're training dogs from the start and and there's also sports as well. So agility and scent work and and all of that stuff. Um, So where a behavior, Where a behaviourist comes in we would tend to look at a problem in more of a kind of consultation style so looking at everything so we would start with a veterinary referral that means we've got access to um, the animal's medical history but also we've got an open dialogue with the vet so if there could be medical um, implications Um, then we can talk to the vet about that. If there are nutritional issues, we can liaise with the vet about that. And also if the dog may need some medication to help with training and behavior, then we've got that open dialogue with the vet. Um, And we also want to ensure that we are aware of, or the animal has been treated for any medical factors which might be impacting their behavior. Um, so kind of how the the process is started with the, the the kind of three-way relationship with the behaviorist the vet and the client that's really important um so then we would go on to um the kind of the, the initial consultation and normally there's about an hour of history taking because we really want to understand firstly the animal's history and and makeup but also what's the client's lifestyle like and what what are their family dynamics and how might that impact our our, our um treatment program and, and that kind of thing so it's it's very very detailed um often with a behaviour consultation i end up with like quite a long list of very different issues um so it's it's sort of it's a way of having that consultation process in my mind is a way of focusing the client on Well, there's this list of issues and they seem incredibly overwhelming at the moment, but if we break it down, actually, we can change this and this and this very easily and we can then work on this and focus on that and so it's it's a way of really looking at the overall problem and I think the other thing to point out there is. um, Where you have. A behavior issue, particularly which is relating to you know fear and anxiety you can't really just fix one bit you have to look at everything um so that's why the consultation process does take more time and it, and it looks at everything so um you can ensure that the dog isn't becoming so trigger stacked because he's got all these stresses at home and then he's expected to not react out on his walk or vice versa and that that kind of thing we have to look at everything and and make sure that the client has enough support to go through all of those issues and and make sure that there's simple and easy plans to address them yeah um and often because there's so much information we behaviorists will often write a report or, or provide a bit more follow-up um information in writing um and then I think follow-up support is really really important in person and um making sure that going forward the client and the dog are able to work through the treatment program um and I think lack of follow-up has been a big problem in maybe clients not always being successful so that's something um that 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 we have to us behaviorists have to really bear in mind
0: yeah 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 and this is how for example i've worked together with behaviorists because they do everything you just said and then they say to me okay so now we have to work on this and then i take over sometimes because i can Uh do the follow-up and i do part of that program if i you know if i can help so um that's how i would like to work (laughs) more (laughs) you know i would like to have a behaviorist that for, for the difficult cases, I don't take too difficult cases. I take my, you know, I'm a border collie specialist. My main thing is crazy, excitable, you know, full of energies, chasers <laughs> that wants to stop and control the world. So That's my main specialty, of course, together with puppies and sport, a bit of sport training. When the behaviors become, you know, too serious, then I do, I do send them to behaviorists. So aggression. Um, you know, high level of aggression, resource guarding, and of course, uh, noise noise phobia and um, separation anxiety, all that to me is something that I'm more comfortable sending to a behaviorist that, you know, and then if there needs to be me following up on some of that, then I'm happy to take it back and, and do that. But yeah, so I I do, you know, I do feel and I, in the past, I wanted to become a behaviorist. And I'm like, you know, I, and I know a lot of the the, the theory and the theme but now I do like my role as a trainer <laughs> yeah I feel yeah. quite comfortable in my role as a trainer and I like I like do a bit, a bit of a bit of sport and a bit of other things and not yeah. just
1: yeah I think as behaviorists we can get quite bogged down and um, I, I know a number of behaviorists who have worked very hard to get to to that level and then decided actually I much prefer preventative (laughs) training which um is is you know if you can prevent the problems from starting well that's just amazing and 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 I also think um I spoke earlier about a kind of a a three-way relationship between the client vet and behaviorist but I do think that should and it will in the future become more of a four-way relationship between the client vet behaviorist and trainer yeah um because we don't have enough clinical animal behaviorists to Provide the owners with the follow up support that they really need. So to be able to have trainers on board to help support them, because um, often with behaviour cases, you've kind of you've got all this theoretical um, information that needs to get passed over, but you also need to to do some practical work with the client and the dog and, and ensure that they know what they're doing. Um, and often you're working with clients who haven't done no training, so yes. you're starting from the beginning entirely um, and um that's a huge huge problem because yeah. you know you you don't you don't become a trainer overnight <laughs> and no. when you've got a dog with a behavior issue you need to be thinking like a trainer really and thinking about timing and and when to Mechanic. push to pull back mm-hmm. and technique and yeah exactly and yeah so so it's a big problem and I, I think um owners are very aware that they need that practical help and they're willing to pay for it as well, but they just there isn't enough people working together to make that yeah. happen. So yeah,
0: yeah, I do agree, and that, that's that would be my my you know my my dream as a, as a dog trainer to have all that team put together yeah. and, and help and on a regular basis, you know. Yeah, unless is you know is a puppy or an adolescent dog that just needs basic stuff, but yeah, when we are dealing with you know especially anxiety and reactivity and fear, which I do take cases if they're not too severe and. But I still would like to have that kind of initial behaviorist approach um, before working with a client. So great. So I think that, you know, we can dive into our topic because it it quite, you know, it it quite chains quite, quite nicely. So the reason why, you know, the, 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 the reason why when you said, you know, would you like me to be on the podcast? And I said, yes, please, because I would like to talk about this, because in the recent times I've had discussion with people that think that they can fix anxiety um or fear responses in one or two sessions and that's what the industry sees a lot recently you know i can fix your dog's anxiety and fear in a few sessions and of course the method used for that are not the most gentle method and you know and and that's why i said i need an episode about talking about what is anxiety i mm-hmm. mean you know we need to let people understand what is anxiety and why it cannot it cannot be fixed in In a couple of sessions (laughs) and then what is fear which links into anxiety, but they are slightly different, maybe from a, I don't know, from a scientific point of view. Yeah, Um, before actually before we start on that I didn't ask you what dogs you have.
1: I just got the one dog at the moment, he's a Border Collie and he's 15 months
0: oh good
1: yeah so hence why i follow your page <laughs> um, but yeah he's um he's a lovely boy and he's my first collie my
0: okay. um
1: i've had terriers before and um my last dog was an american bulldog and sadly he died last year so um yeah it's very different yes yeah, so i was going to
0: ask you what how, how is it swapping to to terriers to to a
1: collie? yeah um well, I think the biggest thing, the, the biggest difference that's that really strikes me is um how verbal they are. So how in tune with with words, verbal words. And I think I didn't realise before how much I'm I'm used to dogs who don't really need that verbal cue. They they learn the, the visual signals and we all know that. You know, as trainers know that dogs learn the visual signals before they learn the verbal cues and um and they they'll they'll sort of just bumble along with with that but with a collie I'm really noticed it's really struck me how um if you have not got that cue exactly how it was before they notice the difference and um my boy often looks at me like what did you mean there because <laughs> last time it was a bit different so, so I've had to really tighten up on my training actually and okay um, it's it's been quite interesting because as a behaviorist as well I don't really have to train for precision yeah in the sense that I can you know generally I'm, I'm t- i the main thing I teach is um management strategies so I, I don't really have to train for precision and very accurate timing. I do teach scent work as well, actually, and, and for that I do, but um, so it's, um, yeah, he's, he's definitely challenging me in some new ways, which is what I wanted. So yeah, yeah I'm very happy. Yeah.
0: Good, good. Okay, so I'm going to start with um, my question, which is the most obvious one, what it is anxiety?
1: Okay, so anxiety in my mind, is worrying about the what-ifs. You know, what could happen when I interact with that dog? What could happen if that man approaches me? It's worrying about what is going to happen in the future. Um, And any human that suffers from anxiety will fully appreciate how debilitating that is, how exhausting that is, um, and also how you can't just switch it off. So going back to your point on, um, you know, any trainer who claims they can fix the dog's anxiety in a session or two, what they're really saying is they can change the dog's behaviour. But there's a big difference between behaviour change and emotional change. Um, yeah. And that's what I talk to clients about a lot. You know, we, we're not just trying to suppress behaviour. We're not just trying to change the behaviour to a different response you know for example a dog who's fearful of dogs you know that you might teach the dog to go to the side and sit but are we actually changing the dog's emotional response to that dog being in their vicinity and that's the really big difference if we're going to fix anxiety then we have to um we have to really change the thought process behind it so um yeah anxiety in my mind is worrying about what is going to happen um whereas fear is responding to a perceived threat there and then the dog is worried that they are in danger or in danger of harm in that moment there is a direct threat so they have to deal with that direct threat and get it away um so yeah that's um a subtle difference between the two, but an important difference.
0: Yeah. So how these two how do these two manifest in dogs?
1: Um, so that's where they can be crossover, but but expressions yeah. of anxiety and fear may be the dog's um body posture. So if his ears are back, um, or if he's got a kind of coward look about him. Um, if his tail is tucked or or low, um, rolling over. So rolling over, I think, is a really important one to mention because a lot of people talk about, um, especially in trainers or, or behaviourists who use a kind of dominance theory base, um, they'll talk about rolling over maybe as a good thing, the dog submitting. Um, and although it is a submissive gesture in a sense, it's a gesture which is... Um, a a big response to threats. It's a loud response to threats. So um, a dog who rolls over, in my mind, is a dog who's extremely fearful. um, And that could escalate, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. so yep. Yeah, so that's sort of general body posture um, and body cues. Lip licking is also a massive signal which um, trainers and behaviourists will know to look out for. Um, a dog who licks the lips is a dog who is dealing with a stress response. Um, it can have communicative uh, meaning behind it, but also it's it's um, it's the dog dealing with the stress response, um, so that's a huge, huge, hugely important signal to look out for. Um, the dog's eye, as well, I think, is very important, and that's a very subtle one to look out for. So, um, a dog who is in a fearful state will often have rounded eyes compared to a dog who is relaxed in which case their eyes will be more kind of almond shaped and softer. Sometimes I think just talking about hard and soft can be very useful when I'm thinking about eyes in dogs and how is their eye contact directed? Is it hard or is it soft? Um, That goes on in a way to to my other point, which is avoidance. So anxious or fearful dogs will avoid situations and that we have to remember all of these behaviors can be on a kind of spectrum yes. um, from very mild signs to very extreme so for example when we're talking about um, avoidance if I'm working with a dog who's approaching something which triggers him to feel anxious or fearful um, I'll start to see avoidance responses and that could just be hesitation that could be a freeze I don't want to go any further that's what he's saying to his owner there it could be he starts to look around which might be he's sort of getting agitated and looking for his way out or it could be he starts to excessively head turn so head turning is the dog diverting their eye contact and that can be a signal um, to another dog I don't want to fight I don't want this to go badly Um, I don't want to fight and I, I i want to avoid this interaction but again there's there's a, a scale <laughs> for all of this so and hopefully i'll clear that up in a bit um if the dog is off lead, they'll often want to go around the trigger as well they might want to go further away and again that could just be very subtle they just go two meters further out or it could be they go around the bushes to completely avoid that situation so Um, Avoidance is a really big, big um, factor and dogs who are on lead cannot do that, which is a huge, huge component to on lead reactivity.
0: Um,
1: Some other points which are really, really pertinent to this time of year as well when we're talking about fireworks um, is panting, pacing and hiding, because those are responses which a lot of people might be seeing from their dogs at the moment. For some dogs, they might bark at the fireworks as well. And those dogs are often considered a pain, but not fearful. But actually, they are fearful. They are vocalising to try and remove a threat. Um, So that's a really important one. Um, So I think when we're trying to learn how to read our dogs, my advice is learn your dog, because every dog is different. Some dogs have got floppy ears, so you don't see that they're back. Some dogs have got tails which are stuck on top, so they can't go down. You know, So you've got to learn to read your dog and read the whole dog, not just, um, you know, one part is—is is it wagging its tail or not? Because that's probably the least informative body signal.
0: That's yeah. Um, that's the most the most I think uh, misunderstood body signal in dogs. Yeah, yeah. But it's wagging its tail while it's barking at that dog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
1: he's happy. Um, so tail wagging doesn't always mean happy. Um, again, you've got to learn your dog, and and some dogs will wag when they're anxious to appease um, or. Try and fix the situation in a friendly way. Um, Some dogs will, I I sometimes describe the tail as kind of like an antennae for arousal. The the stiffer the tail, the um, maybe the more aroused that dog is and the more um, focused they are on whatever problem they're about to be facing. So it's a bit of a red flag. That's um, <laughs> fine. It's a, we, we live in dog houses, so yeah, exactly. There's always something going on. <laughs> um, so where was I? Um, I think that covers a lot of the kind of expressions. But I think how one dog will react when they're anxious versus fearful. Like I you said, you've got to learn your dog and and what's yeah what's going on.
0: Yeah. So yeah, the the majority of the, the the reactivity, sorry, the the behaviors that I you know that I see in colleagues that are, are, you know, anxious or um, or fearful of something is of course what you mentioned earlier about lead reactivity. You know,
1: sorry, my connection just dropped a bit there. Oh,
0: I just had it phone call coming in as well so can you hear me now
1: yeah yeah i can hear you now yeah
0: so what i was saying before is you know um but probably you'll get there um about you know the the spectrum of behaviors you know and and you mentioned that the lead is a plays a big factor on how the dog shows that fear towards something because if they're off lead they can avoid yeah well they are when they're on a lead they can't avoid so they will start showing that kind of escalation of behaviors you're probably going to get there but yeah and that's the majority I think of um you know when we see a dog that is anxious or fearful about something we see them normally when they get to that stage we don't see them before that stage because the owners don't know how to look for those things out before they happen and they're bigger yeah. Um, so, and then I, I always, when I talk to my to, to, to clients that, you know, call me first and, and discuss their dog reactivity, and I said, okay, so what was he doing before becoming reactive? Was he cowering away? Was he trying to avoid eye contact? Was he doing that? Oh, yeah, he was doing all that, but he was fine. No, he wasn't fine. But that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's where I think, you know, you probably see the same. That's when we see most of yeah. the time the, the clients and the dogs at that stage when they've tried everything to avoid it and they can't anymore. So they start reacting in yeah. a way that the owner can't control. And that's why they start asking for help.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what I normally start with, and I'm, I'm trying to get this point across to owners, um, I'll start by talking about what, what would be a normal interaction between, let's say a dog and another dog. Um, so they, the, the level of communication that goes on between dogs at a distance, I think is massively under estimated and understood so um, if i'm talking through this to a, to a client what i will talk about is this conversation because it's the lack of conversation that often causes the reactive behavior um as well as the fear and anxiety and it all becomes a big web of problem but um so when i'm let's say i you know I try and picture, and this often is very relatable for people because they've seen it a million times when they're on their dog walks, but they didn't realize at the time how significant it was. So um, let's say that we've got one nice sociable dog who wants to meet another and they see each other from 30 meters distance. The first dog might sit, lie down or stand still and then look over at the distant dog. And the distant dog might respond to that by turning his back on the first dog and getting busy sniffing in the bushes. And that's that dog saying, I'm busy and I don't want to interact. And we want that dog in the distance to respect that. Um, Or if the dog in the distance does want to engage back, they will do something to mirror and converse with the first dog. So they might Sit, lie down, normally just stand still. And then there's that kind of Mexican standoff for a couple of seconds where they're just looking at each other. And then one of them will break the ice, and they'll normally do that by turning their head, avoiding eye contact. And then they might walk towards each other, and they might walk towards each other at a respectful kind of pace. So they might change the speed in which they approach. And then they might, again, avoid eye contact by head turning or head lowering. They walk a bit closer to each other. They might curve to the side. So they use a little bit of distancing to um, make the interaction less intense. So by the time they've got to each other, there's been a number of signals to lower tension, calm the situation and tell each other that they had good intentions. Um, So once they're within tooth range, they can have a nice relaxed bum to bum sniff. That's the whole idea of this conversation from a distance. Um, And it's a big problem because that conversation is so important. But the way we manage our dogs now, um, often the dogs are under-exercised. So when they do go out to the park, they go bananas. They're often bred to be high-driven working dogs. So again, when they do go out to the park, they're going bananas because they're not getting enough work. Um, And that then means you've got dogs who are running towards each other, trying to instigate play before they've had that conversation. Um, And they're they're sort of, they're not learning how to have that conversation properly. So then these young dogs are in theory well socialized, but they grow into adult dogs who can't, they they don't know how to manage themselves socially. Um, Now where all that fits in with reactive behavior and aggression, and this comes back to our kind of list of, of expressions of fear and anxiety, Um, I talk about the ladder of aggression which was a concept created by Kendall Shepard in 2002 um, who is a fellow behaviourist so if we think of a ladder we can think of escalation in behaviour going up this ladder so at the bottom of the ladder we have signals which are designed to diffuse conflict so that's our conversations that I was just talking about, Um, and some of our stress signals. So just things like blinking, that's a way of of changing how soft or hard a stare might be. Um, Head turning or head lowering, lip licking, yawning, distancing, changing speed, distance and approach. Um, So all those signals are very important for, for regulating everyday interactions, greetings, and play. Um, And when it gets a bit tense and awkward as well, those signals are there for the dogs to make sure they can utilize them and they can um, use these signals to help ensure it doesn't escalate. Um, Now, if it does escalate, then if we go up to the middle of the ladder, we'll be looking at a dog who looks fearful. So that's where we might have that ears back, coward position, tail under, maybe even rolling over. And then at the very top of the ladder, we've got stiffening up, staring, growling, barking, lunging, snapping, biting, being at the very top. So um, it's important that dogs can have conversations in order to avoid going up the ladder. It's important that they have the skills to help bring things down when it does start to get a bit tense. Um, And it's so important that our owners can read these subtle signals um because if we can read the subtle signals we can preempt and anticipate problems and either avoid those problems from happening or avoid the dogs going to the top and quite often when i get called in and i'm sure you're familiar with this as well martina that you get called in when the dogs are routinely going uh, the up top. the top of the ladder <laughs> yeah, exactly. stiffening up staring when they see other dogs um or yeah. whatever else might be triggering them um yeah. So yeah, learning to read subtle signals is, is absolutely vital.
0: Yeah, exactly. I've just recorded actually an episode uh, one of my own episode where I exactly teach this, but you know, explain this, but from a, um, you know, chasing traffic point of view, how important it is to in every kind of training when you want, you don't want escalation to be able to read those signals. At the very beginning and knowing when things are going to start to escalate so you can work on it straight away instead of having to call the trainer in when the behavior is already far gone, yeah. <laughs> which is what happens to me and, and yeah. The colleagues. Yeah, so, it's so important, you know, and, you know, that's why, you know, we try to, to educate owner and I try with my videos and webinars and podcasts to try to say when you see that call me because I yeah. can work on it straight away instead of waiting for it to escalate and that is more difficult and it takes longer.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and uh, yeah and then and then and then you you have very frustrated owners as well because the behavior is at that point difficult with life yeah
1: yeah absolutely
0: okay so um so yeah we discussed what you know what anxiety or a fear response looks like now what is the physiology or the
1: what's the science behind these behaviors so when a dog um, perceives something that they're, they're worried about or, or fearful of, um, they will use what's often referred to as the five F's. So you've got freeze, fight, flight, flock, which just means kind of get clingy, or fidget, which means act like a goofball so i think those are really really important um, to remember because when you have dogs who are just hyperactive quite often that is an anxiety response Mm -hmm. um if you have dogs which are very shut down some owners might perceive that as well they're very well behaved (laughs) but actually that could be an anxiety response and often um we don't really pay attention unless You've got a major flight response, i.e. the dog is bolting, or you've got a fight response, which is the more common one, um, which is aggression. So, um, And again, all those things can vary from mild to severe. And it's important, even if we see a mild response, we take note of it and we think about how to help the dog before it becomes severe. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's happening in the brain is the dog's not really thinking about what's happening he's not he's missing out his prefrontal cortex which in the dog is quite small anyway but we we have this huge frontal cortex which is where all our thinking and rationalization occurs but dogs have very small prefrontal cortexes from the offset but also when they're under stress they're not going to go and think about rationalizing that behavior and um whether it's appropriate or not, they're gonna go straight to their more primitive areas of the brain, specifically the amygdala. Um, So the amygdala is basically going to, it's almost like a start button for a cascade of physiological responses, which is gonna be involving cortisol release and adrenaline. So what's happening in the body is the muscles are tightening the heart's beating faster, which means blood is flowing around faster um, and helping to oxygenate all those muscle cells that might be needed for fight or flight. Um, Often there is gonna be a pause in gut motility and what that means um, is you know, that kind of cannonball in your stomach feeling where you're driving along and maybe you pull out at the wrong time on a roundabout and you have a kind of (gasps) moment where you think you were about to crash. Um, That is that cannonball in your stomach feeling. That's um, a cortisol and adrenaline response. Um, And when I'm talking about this with clients, I'll often talk about that response because it's something everybody can relate to. And think, yeah, I know that feeling. Um, and it's a very aversive feeling. So, even if the trigger for that fear response was unwarranted, or maybe it was, um, you know, the dog just made a mistake, <laughs> just something made him jump, and 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 we don't think it was a massively traumatizing experience, maybe we don't think it was warranted, and the dog was just being silly. Um, but that that feeling, that very aversive feeling um, can have a huge impact on learning. So from that, one trial learning will potentially create an association of things jumping out in the bushes, make me jump, therefore I'm scared of this location or I'm scared of any personal dog I might meet in this location. Some strange associations can be made through that Fight or flight response because it's so aversive, um, and like I said, even if it's if it's warranted, if it's not warranted, if it was just a silly mistake, it, it can still have that very detrimental effect and, and cause life-changing um, behavioral changes to, to the dog, which is is frustrating. So remember, they're not rationalizing that fear or that anxiety; they are just acting on their emotions. And that's very much driven by a very primitive part of the brain, um, which we have as well. Um, and so it's pure instinct. It's pure instinct, exactly. Yeah, and it's what we see is the outward. We we see outwardly what is the dog doing. The dogs maybe we see that they're panting more maybe we see any of those fear responses that we were just talking about maybe we see the dogs sped up or running away or gone into fight you know we we see those things outwardly but often we forget about what's happening internally and anybody who suffers from stress (laughs) knows that it's very hard to just switch off that that internal response that you're having um and you know people stay in in therapy trying to work out how to do that so it's um yeah it's a big deal
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and finally we can say that dogs you know have the same feeling and emotions because that's been proven of
1: course. Um, Yeah. so
0: you know they're going through the same the same yeah problems that people with anxiety go yeah. through yeah absolutely yeah, I always say to people, you know, have you afraid of spiders? And 90% of people I ask that say, yes. <laughs> so how do you feel if I, you know, if I tell you that, or if you look at, see that you turn around and see a spider? Yeah, you either want to kill it or you want to run away. You, you want to
1: yeah.
0: hide, yeah. scream, and you can't, it, you can't rationalize
1: it. You know, it's, yeah.
0: not, it's not something you, you want to just be out of there or,
1: or not have it to see it again. Yeah, and they'll have all those internal responses as well going on. Mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and I think we kind of human society we've we've become a bit out of touch of our emotions because we 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 have such advanced verbal skills and and all of that so we we've kind of we think we can talk our way around things and then we forget to actually think about how we actually feel um on just like a physical level so I think I think that's a very good exercise for owners as well to just have an awareness of their own stress responses and how it makes them feel because that can make them relate to their dogs so much better mm-hmm. um, but also owners of fearful or anxious dogs pretty much always become fearful and anxious themselves because they're having yes. to deal yes. with that behavior and it, it only takes one fight or one nasty experience of a dog running over and attacking theirs or, or, you know, for for a whole heap of human emotions to start playing into this problem as well. So it's, it's important humans understand their own stress responses.
0: Yeah. And as, you know, as trainers and behaviorists, you know, I've been through it. Well, apart from having a reactive dog that is now 12, I've been in the situation where another dog attacked my dog's um, or not even attacked, but just chased and something could have happened. It didn't happen, but I was scared and I shouted and then I managed to get the dog back. And you know, what? for weeks, I remember it happened, you know, when it, last time it happened a big one for weeks, I didn't want to go back to that walk.
1: Yeah.
0: The feeling of how I felt and the possibility of happening again, didn't want me to go back for that walk. I had to, at some point, you know, talk myself down to It's not going to happen again. And then take my dogs back to that walk. But it took me that I don't suffer from anxiety <clears throat> to get back to the to to, to to get enough courage. And I'm a human, so I can re- rationalize. And I had to convince myself to go back to that walk. Yeah. So can you imagine what dogs go through when you know when, when yeah. they have that happening to them? And then yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I always tell that to my to my students as well, you know, I had, I remember that time as soon I moved to this house four years ago and I remember finally after moving and taking care of, you know, boxes and everything, I had time to walk my dogs in my local place, um, my new place and I'm in the countryside and I remember walking down the path that we have, the footpath that we have very close by and what is now one of my very good neighbours, she had the dogs out and you know, I was new in the area. She didn't know I was there at that time of the day because she always walked those dogs at that time of the day. And nobody was around. So I was the new one coming into a routine and her yeah. dogs are reactive, three of them. And they all came up from, from the bushes and circled my dogs, but I had my very old girl with me, my young boy, and then my reactive one. So I had to, you know, think how to save the old girl and how to let the boy get, you know, Get, get the situation under control and everything. And I remember that was exactly, you know, it took me a month to go back to that. And it was my local, I had to get my car and walk also because I didn't want to go down that road anymore. Yeah,
1: um, that's so I interesting. Was... And it, it just says so much as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I was already in a state of anxiety because I moved house, so I was a bit stressed, not anxiety, I was a bit stressed. Yeah. So yeah. again, that's the same thing, you know, if, if they're stressed, as you say before, if you're stressed for other situations, your dog is stressed for other reasons, then you know that just adds up and then everything becomes difficult to control for everyone so yeah yeah, um, yeah. sure okay so <clears throat> one of the things that i always have to explain when someone calls me um and we start talking about the dog that is reaction is reactive to dogs or people or, or things or even you know cars and and stuff you know they always try to find the reason so they want to know the reason they want to know why and one of the many big reasons in the last few years has been lack of socialization <laughs> with you know i had to always you know um chat about the, the socialization what it is and i haven't done a, an episode on socialization but i'm going to have one soon um because i think that's another big chapter in a dog life that needs to be talked about um but yeah so what are in in, in what are the many many um reasons why dogs might develop fear and anxiety
1: um so the first and probably most obvious reason is trauma so a bad experience um and we have to remember a trauma could be something as small as a larger dog just bouncing over to play with a smaller dog you know that could be traumatizing to that smaller dog um or it could be a full-on attack you know it can it can vary and and also how a dog is going to react to a trauma can vary massively so some dogs can shake things off better than others just like people so yeah trauma trauma is definitely a a big a big thing um lack of socialization i think would probably be second on the list for um, causes for fear and anxiety and and the reason that a lack of socialization is so so important um socialization is like an umbrella term isn't yeah. it for so many things um but my my kind of my summary of it is you're getting the dog used to a variety of dogs a variety of people and a variety of environments and things that will be in the environment like traffic and noises and things like that so um if you have a dog who does not meet a wide variety of of, of stimuli I, I kind of think of them categorizing it as like two boxes in their head it's okay or it isn't okay so for a dog that's under 16 weeks they're categorizing everything like sponges so they're putting hopefully lots of things in the it's okay box but then if there's the odd thing that they haven't met before and they meet it later on in life, they're more likely to be able to adapt and cope because they've got lots in their it's okay box. If you have a dog who doesn't have very much in their it's okay box, they're more likely to react with fear later on. Um, so so that's, I think most people understand the importance of socialisation now and they, they do get that they need to do it. But I think one of the biggest frustrations I have is... When we talk about socialization we don't talk enough about the dogs learning how to communicate mm-hmm. and learning that conversation that, that i was talking about earlier um, and that conversation it's designed for dog on dog interaction of course but it's also dogs will, will do that to people they'll communicate okay. in the same way to people um, and maybe even objects as well and um, so you know, I've seen plenty of dogs head turning to a stationary log yes. <laughs> that they're worried about in the distance. Um, so that it's so important that dogs learn how to communicate because it's only if you know how to communicate that you can learn that you can bring a problem, you can talk a problem down, you can de-escalate a problem through your own body language and your own skills. And then that would obviously give you a lot of confidence. Um, If you're not aware that you can do that because you haven't had enough learning opportunity, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be worried about um, not being able to influence the outcome. And I think people who suffer from anxiety probably, from my experience of meeting a lot of people, a, a lot of people who suffer from anxiety don't feel confident that they have the power to control situations through their own behavior. Um, So lack of socialization is very important. And yes, it's about dogs not meeting enough dogs and people and traffic at a young age. Yes, it's about that, but it's also about them not getting enough learning opportunity to learn how to actually deal with those things and be managed well enough to learn how to become stable citizens who can react to problems um, in the right way um so yeah very important
0: yeah yeah i I was just going to say that i you know is um one thing that i've noticed i think in the last few years especially i think since moving to the uk is the amount of dogs that go through these socializing classes or play you know free-for-all bring your puppy 20 30 puppies together or even young dogs and and I think that, you know, socialization can be done the wrong way as well. And that has caused a lot of dogs that are now reactive because they've had actually bad way of socializing with other dogs, not yeah. controlled. You know, not every dog is going to be OK with any other dog. You need to find the right dog for your type of dog. Um, otherwise, your dog will go through trauma in mm-hmm. young age because exposed to the wrong socializing experience. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I have no problem saying that I'm against, you know, you pay and you get into a field with another 30 owners and, and puppies and the puppy just plays and it's free for all. And then there's no management, and no training, no nothing. Yeah. And I've seen it with my eyes because I used to work for a place like that. And okay. yeah. so, you know, I think, yeah, I think I think in the last few years that has something that has developed more. Yeah. And I wonder if that's one of the many reasons we have so many reactive dogs yeah. coming yeah Definitely.
1: yeah and also especially over lockdown I, I heard from a lot of owners I realized there was a problem in that he wasn't socialized well enough so I put him in daycare twice a week yes and you know daycares can be amazing and I've seen some dogs really benefit from that but but in many cases the reason the owner thought there was a problem <laughs> is because there was a problem and daycare was not the right solution to that problem at that time what that owner needed was to understand body language and how to manage them on a walk so they get the best out of the social interactions they do have um and social interactions don't have to be close um because this distant conversation is so important to many dogs just to kind of say you know have some engagement from a distance and then disengage and move on is completely satisfying for them um so yeah yeah increase in using daycare over lockdowns definitely yeah yeah um so another cause i have on my list is genetics yeah so some dogs um like i said some dogs can shake things off better than others and i think that's that's almost blueprinted for all of us to a degree oh yeah um, through our genetics um there are lots of components to what might affect genetics which would include the situation that the parents of that dog have come from um so you know only within one or two generations you can have you can breed anxiety into Mm -hmm. um, a, a certain bloodline for sure um and again, maybe that's become more of a problem over lockdown where we've seen less responsible breeding.
0: Oh, yes, definitely. the um, so, Border collie, I've seen it so much, you know, I know farmers that will just buy bitches ready to be bred just because there was such a high demand in puppies and they were breeding anything. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I, I think some of the poodle crosses that we're seeing as well, um, lovely as some of them are, there are also, they, they've almost been bred to tick a box rather than um, considering the temperament of the Cocker Spaniel and the Cocker po- and, and the Poodle, for example. And we've ended up, I think, with, with quite a high prevalence of, of nervous dogs for that reason. Um, so, yeah, genetics is a huge, huge, um, a huge factor. Um, that's really going to come down to brain development as well. So a dog's early experiences will affect how their brain development, how our brain develops. A dog in utero, if their mum is under stress, can um, have changes to their brain development. So so that's um, that's certainly important, but also yeah, what we're passing down when we're, we're selectively breeding some dogs, um definitely we need to be thinking about the genetics and and how anxiety and and excessive fear um could be could be um passed down when it it potentially could be avoided and we could improve breeding standards to help with that
0: yeah and i talked about this probably in other podcasts but in collies especially people don't think that you know the mum and the dad of the puppies live in a farm and they're bred for their working qualities they don't have to be you know, perfectly behaved, if they were put into a pet home, they probably some of them are exceptional workers, but they are, you know, they don't like they have never seen maybe a different dog that wasn't a collie. And if you put them into a walk in town, and they see pugs and German shepherds and bulldogs and Labradors, they might freak out because they they have that predisposition to be fearful of things or have anxiety but they don't show them because they work and then they go back to the kennel so i think that that's something that you know they think oh i've seen the parents on the farm (sighs) fine yes they were fine because you didn't see them in a situation where you need your pup to be you see them in their own environment where they work and they go back to the kennel and maybe they have a bit of life you know around the yard with the family but it's very limited yeah so yeah, definitely, and that's
1: that's very um, I think very true for gun dogs as well because yes. a lot of gun dogs are treated in a in a way where they're still kennelled. Um, so and the cocker spaniels are so popular these days, yep. and you know there's a lot of you know maybe issues with with the wrong families buying these dogs, um, but also like you said, those dogs are being selected for certain things which are not do they do well in a home environment. And street dogs as well. Rescuing street dogs yes. massively increased. And I think the genetics of a street dog is so different from the genetics of an English bred dog. Yes. Um definitely. so yeah, that's um definitely, definitely a huge factor. Yeah. Um breed that goes on to breed as well. We yes. were speaking a bit earlier about breed and yeah. um there are certainly differences in in the breeds um, in breeds and how they. Sorry, I've got a bit of background noise going on. Well. <laughs> if you can hear that, <laughs> a bit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> um. So. Yeah, I think we just covered that anyway. Though Breed yeah, with breeds, um, yeah, and also the...
0: possibly there is there is some breeds are more predisposed to have certain type of well noise sensitivity and so anxiety to noises, like the collies, for example, they have to be noise sensitive. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to hear a distance. Um, And yeah. And other, you know, like all the garden dogs, they might tend to become more reactive to unknown things, but that's their genetic trait. You know, they have to advise, okay, there is a, there, there is someone coming in that could be a potential danger. I have to let you know, and I have to show how good I am at
1: telling you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think when we're choosing dogs, um, there's definitely a factor of, well, I'm going to buy this dog, but I can train him to be how I want him to be. And I think a lot of people don't completely Mm. respect genetics and how, how strong Mm. they are. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, we also mentioned hormones as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: how hormones can affect fear and anxiety. And um, I think something that's definitely um, become spoken about more and more is the effect of testosterone. Mm-hmm. So, and it's changed so quickly as well, which is it's interesting to me. So, you know, I think five years ago, most vets were saying when a dog reaches six months, castrate them. Um yep. And there's been quite, you know, over a relatively short period of time, there's been a huge shift. Um, And now I would say a lot of vets would say, don't castrate them unless there is a need to castrate them. Mm -hmm. Unless there's an issue, which would be improved if they were castrated. um, Or at least wait until they're over a year or 18 months for the larger breeds. Um, So, and also I think more vets are thinking on a more individual level. Um, So there is some research which um, suggests that if you neuter a dog who is already fearful, you can make them more fearful. Um, So the trend to not neuter fearful dogs is definitely becoming more prevalent or to chemically castrate first to check what the response would be before going ahead and, and fully surgically castrating. Um, and I think that's a really good um that's I think that's a really good change in mindset. I think um there's a few, there quite a few dogs that I see and I think God, if they hadn't been neutered so early, or maybe yeah. if they hadn't been neutered at all, maybe we wouldn't be having these serious conversations about this dog's behaviour. Yeah. Um, of course there's also a problem with thinking that neutering fixes things, which it's a common misconception which is not the case yeah Um, I do
0: get it so much in my phone calls with my future students you know um I've been suggested to neuter it from the neighbor that yeah yeah you know tell me all calm down and yeah yeah
1: (laughs) no yeah Yeah. and I do do see a lot of of positive changes from neutering I'm generally pro-neutering but I'm you know you, you have to Look it's the individual. individual. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's down it's to the individual. individual. Yeah. world
0: individual needs. Like my reactive dog is been neutered chemically at ten, just yeah. because in our we we had a female, in C, you know an entire female in our life, and. Um, at 10, it didn't change much, actually, I have to say that probably has relaxed him because the only reactivity that was left in him was towards other entire males. Yeah. With all the work we've done, he still was a bit wary about other entire males. So now I think with the neutering, <clears throat> that last bit was gone, but would have done it when he was two, definitely, I think he would have had so much trouble because his re- it, it, with non, non, non entire males his testosterone allowed him to have an interaction with other dogs. That wasn't straight on aggressive reaction because he would flirt. Yeah. Okay. So it, you know, it was very hormonal. He would flirt yeah. a lot as a young dog, but that was the way he could cope with interaction with other dogs, if they were not entire males. And that is the majority because you have more females and castrated males than entire males, especially in this country yeah. than where I'm from. That actually helped me massively. And, yeah. you know, and then it didn't change much in his old life, but also because his social life at 10 was, you know, it's not as active as he used to be yeah. when he was younger and he was going around more and <clears throat> going competition and, you know, traveling a bit more and all that. So,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I think, I think I've seen dogs like him that testosterone made such a beneficial in his way of relating to other dogs.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think, and I think it's also um important to note that the reason behind um testosterone having such a huge impact on on behavior when it comes to social behavior it's not just sexual and yeah. about you know male yeah. competition and that kind of thing but testosterone it's thought of as a confidence giving hormone because it almost drives behavior so um it's it's like a driving hormone that can help a dog be driven to overcome a fear rather than showing more and more excessive signs of, of that fear so it's it's a really important hormone and if anybody wants to read more about it I'd highly recommend um a book called Behave by I hope I'm going to get this right Robert Puskowski Pus- Pus- or something like that. I'll have to get you Yes,
0: yeah if you send me the link I'll put it in the show note Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a really good book. And he goes into testosterone um, and and how it impacts human behavior. And it's so um, it's so comparable. It really is. So, yeah, I found that really interesting. Yeah. Age is another component as well, I think, that can affect fear. So you can have some confident puppies um, and then as trainers, we might hear our clients saying, oh, something's changed. And um, so, and that's about development and stage of development. So they're a nice, confident puppy. The young mind is designed to want to go and do things and take things in and be sponges. So the young mind is meant to be a bit reckless and get stuck in. Um, But then when they get to adolescence, there can be genetic expressions, which change that and that's when you might start to see more fearful or anxious behavior creeping in. Um, Or you can also have that second fear period, um, which is very, very important. So the first fear period is between eight and 10 weeks. The second fear period is around nine months. And the reason that they're at those stages of the dog's development is because those are two key times in the dog's life where they would be ramping up their level of independence. So between eight and 10 weeks, they'd be maybe leaving the den at nine months, they'd be starting to venture off a bit further. And we don't want them to be so reckless at that time. We don't want them to go and play with snakes and things like that. So we want them to respond to novelty with a bit of fear. Um, And that's adaptive and and helpful for survival. So you can get this kind of fear period where they just seem to be so sensitive for a couple of weeks. and any trauma that occurs during that period can be more damaging than if it yeah. occurred before or after. Um, so, you can have confident dogs which change at around adolescence. You can have some dogs which are very, very fearful puppies. Um, and any trainers listening will probably hear this and think, yeah, we, we have some of those. They come into our training classes and we think, oh, good, good, good God, you know, these dogs are going to really have some issues. And then they're cowering and hiding under the chair and whatnot. And then they come in the next week and they're completely, you know, bulldozing their way in. And so they, you can have some very, very unconfident pups who can change and, and turn it around very quickly yeah. with the right management and the right level of, of exposure. What I would be wanting to really try and get through to owners of those puppies is it's OK to adapt socialization. So you know, people might have a plan for their socialization of. Oh, I'm going to go to the pub, and I'm going to go to the garden center, and I'm going to go to the park, and I'm going to do this and that, and then meet my friend's dog. And and actually, some dogs need to go slower, and that's okay. And this is where that kind of 16 week time limit is really damaging, I think, because a lot of people are too intense. Yeah, too much um, they're too eager. too much too much too soon. And I think again, it's about read your dog. Is this too much for them? Yeah. Are they able to take away a positive from this or is it actually overwhelming because it could be counterintuitive? Yeah. Um, so um, And then I also would just add to, to kind of age factor. Um, some dogs are okay, but then life damages them. <laughs> so as they get older, they, um, they start to, you know they've had some bad experiences and those experiences have started to build up. And then slowly, slowly, they become more and more um, fearful. Um, in some ways, I think firework um, fear is a really good example of that because it's something that affects so many dogs. It's it's very you know it's a broad kind of trigger. But um, I I hear so many people call me when the dog is six years old, and they've had six years of firework seasons where it's just got that little bit worse each yeah. year. Um, and what I'd really like owners to understand is if you react when the, the fear is mild, you can just see a bit of panting or maybe they're just pricking up and looking around to find out where the noise is. If you see that your dog is taking notice of those noises, there is mild anxiety at play there. So act then. Um, and obviously you can follow a lot of the normal kind of management techniques for fireworks like being in and keeping your dog company and um trying to alleviate the stress in various ways but also i think it's really important to get on top of it and doing some counter conditioning work which we'll come on to but um to you know you can do something about it and you can help your dog to change their their framework their their and their mindset about those noises before it builds up year on year on year until you've just got a mess on your hands where your dog is so stressed you can't touch you can't get in there Yeah,
0: yeah definitely yeah and there was there was one more thing i think that um well related to age one thing that i do always you know again i get a lot of adolescent dogs so i think a lot of the problem starts coming out during the lesson because again it's another part of the, the brain development which opens up to frustration lack of impulse control and recklessness behaviors and change of social status and everything so i think that's another thing that i see you know colleagues especially you know they start becoming more reactive and so more anxious or fearful of things or also when they get into adolescent mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And again, you know, when you tell owners, yeah, it's because of what's happening, you know, in the development of the brain, they go like, ah, okay, now I understand yeah. why it was fine until it was one. And then at one, <laughs> something happened and the dog yeah. will, well, probably wasn't fine as we already said, you know, there yeah. sh- signs of it, but now that the lesson hits and the collie brain goes completely, I should be working here. I should be in a farm working and no. I'm here getting bored so i'm going to start having too much energy and too less impulse control and too much frustration and and all adds up i think to that maybe little anxiety that they have already
1: yeah absolutely and i think we need to be sympathetic as well that that time of development is so hard if we look at our human um teenagers you know i hated my
0: teenager stay you know i hated my life as a teenager
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. really hard um so we we need to sympathize with our dogs and it's a time where i think you know it's challenging for owners so it's hard to sympathize sometimes but it's um seeing the dog's perspective is important
0: yeah there's one thing i haven't added in there which i don't want to you know it's it's something else that i think he needs a big episode about it but it's definitely pain
1: mm, yeah you know, that's I a forgot really good... to put
0: it in the list but i think it's it's yeah it's another one it's another big Big yeah factor. i i definitely see
1: an increase in reactivity when a dog is in pain um and i've had i've had personal experience of that with my own dogs and horses yeah, me too. and it's it's very profound um and if if i hear a report of any dog who is sort of has suddenly worsened in his behavior yeah. in his anxiety or fearful responses then pain's definitely going to be number one on, on the list to rule out
0: yeah, sure. definitely. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: I will have to do an episode with some, um, yeah, with a physio or a vet. Yeah. For that. That would be good. Be really okay. Good. So now, um, I know we've been talking for a long time, but there is, I think, one more important question, which is, you know, how, so can, can we fix, not fix is a, a right word, but can we work on anxiety? Yeah. With just training. Or do we also need to look at um, something more than training sometimes?
1: Yeah. So I, I think absolutely there's so much that can be done. Um, it always saddens me to see people just managing because, you know, we, we can change things. We can't fix things. Just like if, if anybody has had a trauma or, um, you know, you can't just undo it and just wipe it out of your mind. It's it's always going to be there. But it you, yeah. you you can certainly do a lot to help, um, help the dogs. So with anxiety um, and fear, but focusing on anxiety, first of all, I think my main focus is to use positive reinforcement training to try and make the dog more optimistic. Because if they're leaving the house, and then they're thinking, oh, I wonder how many times I'm going to be asked to do something and I'll get a treat for it you know they're, they're they're going to be more optimistic than the dog who's thinking oh I wonder how many things are going to scare me today so I think positive reinforcement training is a huge huge thing um component to help a dog feel more optimistic um many dogs who are anxious and fearful are pessimists yeah life has either taught them to be that way or their brain development and genetics have taught them to be that way. So, um, so optimism is important. Um, Training will also give the dog predictable outcomes on cue. So it's, it's again, so important. Um, And also training will help the dog to feel supported. So I do think training is a really, really important um, factor, Um, but it also needs to come hand in hand with systematically desensitizing the dog to that trigger
0: yeah
1: so an example with um, a dog who might be fearful about the dogs would be to use training to help support the dog and maintain a distance of which you know they can cope so then they can experience being around that dog and feeling okay about it yeah. um so i'll use lots of food rewards for that yeah. so my my kind of general general um, thought process there would be if you or your dog perceive a trigger for what we know is a trigger for them for anxiety the first thing we do is good boy reward um so we get some initial kind of just pairing classically associating yeah. that trigger with something good then the next thing find space so increase your distance so the dog can be in a safe space but still have the trigger in their vicinity but so they can learn from it but but be within a distance that they can be relaxed enough to learn from it so we increase space and then we reward good choices so we you know i i uh, for every dog uh, a dog fearful dog sees I want them to be getting five treats at least so we're rewarding all those good choices and the dog starts to associate hey well actually I feel okay around this dog I thought I felt bad but now I'm starting to feel okay and that's because we set them up to to help with that and then we can yeah. systematically start to um, either increase decrease the distance or or increase the challenge of the exposure or whatever that might be yeah. um so there we're thinking distance or is the dog head on or going away from the other dog and and that's the sort of thing we're thinking about in terms of changing the challenge of that exposure to the trigger um but the most important thing is it's led by the dog so yes. i am not a behaviorist who thinks right well we've been working from dogs at 20 meters for six weeks now so today we're going to take it down to 15 meters um I don't think that's a very real world way of working um because firstly the other dog's moving so it's distance changes and everything but but also how a dog might be feeling about one dog is going to differ to another, definitely. depending on the size of that dog or the behavior of that dog or the energy or the approach, um, or whatever the, breed. the breed. Yeah, so especially they're so breedists.
0: <laughs> yeah, they definitely have their favorite breeds and the one that they can't stand.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're aiming to read the dog, how are they feeling about what's ahead of them? How much distance does the handler need to give them to feel okay about what's ahead of them and then how can we make the dog feel good about what's ahead of them that's that's the key thing so the the technical term for all of this is systematic desensitization and counter conditioning so we're yeah. trying to counter the fearful response and replace it with a neutral or even a more positive emotional response to that trigger yeah. um and it's very effective and it's very doable and it depends on the dog and the problem as to how long it takes um but it's very very um effective way of working and there's so much hope for how you can change a dog's life using these techniques
0: yeah and do we want to touch a tiny bit on you know when there is the need to ask for medical
1: help yes that's a good point um so with some dogs i will be talking to to my clients about i think maybe some medication to assist with our training would be helpful and in those cases it's going to be when the dog is so over threshold so beyond his point of coping that we've got nothing to work with yeah we, we cannot be in a field with another dog even at a great distance, um, or the the noise sensitivity is so overwhelming, the dog now won't leave the house, or those kind of things. So where the dog's welfare is massively affected, or where the threshold for coping is so small, I've got nothing to work with, that's when I'll be saying I really would advise you can go to your vet and and talk about some medication. Um, The medication is not forever. It's generally gonna be used for six to 12 months. Um, And it is, the idea of of these kind of medication is not to sedate the dog, because that's a common misconception. A lot of owners think, why don't we just make him sleepy? Um, It's not to sedate the dog. We want to actually help support the dog's brain. So we want to increase serotonin levels increase the brain's ability to build serotonin, but also the ability to keep it. Um, Because we and dogs all have differing abilities to to, uh, build serotonin, but also we have different levels of receptors for that neurotransmitter. So um, in in that sense, we're all different. And that's why what one dog or what one human can shake off is maybe different to another um so yeah medication is definitely very very helpful and it shouldn't be used as a last resort um yeah. one one um the way i describe it to owners is if you went to the doctor and described your feelings to the doctor what do you think the doctor will say um and the doctor will probably say mm, this sounds bad and it sounds like you need some help help some support um and they're gonna refer you to a therapist i hope but they're probably also going to prescribe something for you so um but it's not necessary in every case and this is where you need to have a professional help you see the birds from the bees and what's really needed for you and your dog
0: yeah definitely good i think we talked a lot about and um yeah i mean (sighs) We could probably carry on another two hours. We probably could, <laughs> but I think that I think that we we gave a lot of um, a lot of answers that thank you know uh, thank you that to to express them and you know I and 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 you know explain them um, to our listeners in a in an easy way, but also from a from a professional point of view. Um, I feel I lack sometimes the ability of explaining technical things. So it's good that I can invite people like you because of of course my language not being English and and other things that actually have a good way of explaining things. And um, it was really, really good. I think that I hope that people will have light bulb moments after this episode and say, oh, actually, that's that's what I could do for my dogs. Or that's what my dog is starting to show. And I can act before it's too late or. um, Yeah, yeah, I hope. I hope so. yeah, I really hope. And, you know, hopefully also people that might be training a bit in a not wrong way, but yeah, in a bit of a wrong way when dealing with anxiety will have, yeah, will have, you know, good ideas to actually try something else. Um, so that's great. Is there anything else that you would like to add about fear or anxiety? I know you had a big list of things. And...
1: <laughs> no, I think I don't think so. I, I think we've covered the main, I think we've you know, the basics everything. of it and, and hopefully yeah. inspired some people to observe their dogs, read, um, read the kind of more subtle body language. And also if they have a problem, you know, you can do something about it. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah I really hope that's been a help to people.
0: Thank you very much for being here and hopefully um, we'll, we'll talk again in the future. Yeah, I'm yeah? sure. Okay. Lovely. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Border Collie Geek podcast. If you want to know more about my work and how I can help you with your Border Collie, visit www.dattledoacademy.com or follow me on Facebook and Instagram.